Dog training philosophy is changing. In the early days, punishment and pain were thought to be the best teachers. But now, with trainers like today's guest, training has shifted to something that is much more positive for dogs and trainers alike. Hello, I'm James Jacobson. Welcome to The Long Leash. Today on the show, we discuss the history and evolution of dog training. Now, back when I got my first dog many, many years ago, the training world of dogs looked a lot different than it does today. There were not that many trainers around, and if you were lucky enough to live near one, they usually trained using something that is now called negative reinforcement. It was commonly accepted that the best way to train a dog back then was to punish the dog when they did something wrong, whether it was spanking them or rubbing their nose in their accident or using a choke chain or a shock collar. But things luckily have changed. This evolution of dog training has taken us from punishment and pain to something that is much more powerful. The term truly force-free animal training was coined by Shannon Riley Coiner as a way to train your dog. She's our guest today. She does it without using fear or pain and using positive reinforcement. She says that you can train your dog while strengthening the bonds that you two have. Shannon has over 30 years of experience training dogs, and she has watched the shifts in the industry. On today's episode, Shannon shares with us the evolution of dog training and what science tells us about how dogs learn and what to look for in a trainer. Shannon, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. I'm very happy to talk to you guys today. So you have been training dogs, according to your bio, for 30 years. Mm -hmm. True? Yeah. I was 15 or 16 when we got her. And I know that I was 16 when I started training her because I drove to some of the training classes. So, <laughs> so this is when you got your first, when you got your first puppy. I first puppy. We, I have been raised with dogs my whole life. Yeah. I had a Staffordshire Bull Terrier that was born three months before me. And my parents had the mom. And I was raised with, he was my best friend growing up. You know, he was my best friend. And then he passed away. And my parents, we decided to get a, a yellow lab sort of on a fluke. And we were in Utah visiting family, and my dad saw an ad, so we ended up coming home with a yellow lab puppy. Yeah. Let's go back to that first training. 16 years old, Shannon, you got this dog. Did you go to a dog training academy like I did? Or <laughs> I did. Like it was a class. A class. Okay, like through, how many people were in the class? Um, oh gosh, let's see. It was held at our community college outside on the grass, oh. and I would guess probably between 15 and 20 people. We were all, you know, on this grass. What do you remember about the instructor or the she whole? She was yeah. pretty tough and she was, you know, the dog should obey everything, you know, instantly. And she wanted us to use, everybody was required to use a choke collar at first. Right. That was part of the equipment you had to bring. And we used it. And I had a young yellow lab. So sometimes she got a little frisky and when she got frisky one time in class, the trainer got kind of upset that she wasn't being perfect and said, you need to get a pinch collar for this dog. And that scared me because I didn't even really like the choke. 
And I was 16, so I... And the distinction between a choke collar and a pinch collar is... The choke collar is we don't is see these much anymore thanks exactly. to this whole evolution. Yeah, so the choke chain is just a chain, basically, that you loop through. And so when the dog does something, ideas are bad, they'll pop it. So you tighten it, and then it's theoretically will release when you stop. And so they don't have any pressure if they're being good theoretically. And then if they're being bad, you pop them to let them know that that behavior was not appropriate. And so the pop tightens the chain around the neck. Theoretically, training was is that it would be pop fast and hard and then release fast and hard and release, not tight, tight the whole time. But that takes a lot of technique in itself. And so that's the choke chain. And then the pinch And that was sort of the state of the art back in around 1990 when I was training my dog as well for the first time. Yeah, that was the only thing you, I mean, it was like, you get a puppy, you get a choke chain. I mean, it was like, you know. And they just happened to sell it at the place too. Exactly. And so that was kind of like the basic. Then if your dog was naughty, like Missy was this one day, then Uh they might upgrade to what was a pinch collar or a prong collar. Some people call it a prong collar too, where it actually has little prongs that stick out and goes around the neck and the prongs go against your dog's skin. And then when you do the same motion as the choke, you pop it, make it tighten. It's supposed to prong or pinch. That's why it can be called a pinch, a prong. It pinches their skin and then releases, again, theoretically, that if they were working properly and they're handled properly, it's supposed to be in one second or, you know, pain and then release. Most people can't do that. So that's not how it really works. But so when Missy was misbehaving, they said, you have to get a pinch. And I panicked. Like, I didn't want it. But I told you, my mom's boss was in class, and he had a really wild yellow lab. Like, <laughs> Winston was off the charts and a wild. So he already had a pinch collar on. So he said, well, do you want to try mine? So, of course, as a 16-year-old, I'm not going to tell this teacher no. So I put it on, and I pop her once. She cried. I took it off and I said, I'm not using this ever again. And I gave it back to Chris, who was my mom's boss. And I said, I'm not using it. I'll just deal with her with this choke, which I still didn't like. And that was really, I remember that day like it was yesterday. And this was 30 years ago. And it wasn't a you know big moment. It wasn't like it was anything in anybody else's world probably wouldn't have made an impact. But for me... I was like, I'm not using those. I can't do that to her. So that made me go into overdrive of creating positive reinforcement, which was not talked about in the 90s. So what do you mean? You at 16 were developing this this whole pedagogy? I started bringing treats. And no. we trained. Did you get the idea yourself, or had mm-hmm. you? I mean, it this was, is pre Google. So where did you uh, come yeah, up? Yeah, there this? was pre Google. It was there were no dog books that had this. I mean, Karen Pryor was actually doing this, and mm-hmm. Kathy Sedeo was actually doing this, but it wasn't public like it is right. now. So they were doing it, but it wasn't the world didn't know this yet. And I just started bringing treats in my pocket when we went on walks and gave her treats. And when she sat, I gave her a treat. And when she laid down, I gave her a treat. And I was like, well, I don't want to use this choke chain, but she has to be obedient to continue in the class so that I don't get in trouble. So I'm going to teach her to walk off leash. And so if she can do it off leash, she can wear the choke chain (laughs) as a necklace, but she won't need it. And 
that's what we did. And I went all the way through to the point that the trainer actually wanted us to compete in obedience. At first, I probably, when I look back, probably did a little bit of what we call now balance training, where I popped her for being bad and then treated her for being good. But now we would call that balance training. But um, I probably was doing that at the beginning stages. But do you think that your instructor was thinking, oh, this is really the choke collar working because the dog is paying attention. It's not the treats. I guess because I never brought treats to class. Because that would be blasphemy at that time. Okay, if so I, you were cheating. You were yes, doing homework with treats. Yes, I was cheating when I did the homework. And then everybody was like, oh, Missy's so good. How do you do that? And I told them, I, I, all I told them is I practiced every morning. Because that is a big piece of training, is okay. I practice every single morning. With a handful of, of treats. goodies. And yeah. what treats do you call what you used back then? I probably used, because there were no fancy treats back then. I mean, I may have used milk bones and like hard treats like... Gosh, I don't even know what they're called now, but they were sausages or something that yeah, she yeah, liked, yeah, all that. Yeah. You know, those old school dog yeah, treats. Yeah, yeah. And then ham, hot dogs and cheese. Hot, <laughs> I, I, you had hot dogs in your, in your pocket? In a, in a Ziploc oh, you know, okay. or a, in a baggie. But um, mostly I think I used the hard treats when we were on a walk because I did not have my treat pouch at that time. That was pre-treat pouch. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so you started this all with rejecting the notion of causing pain and fear in your dog as you trained when you were young. But 30 years later, you've witnessed this shift in training techniques over time. How has that helped you with the work that you're doing today? And and how does it separate you from some of your colleagues? Some of my colleagues have a hard time. You know, they'll be like, why are you wearing, you know, using that? And I can be compassionate to where they're at, meet them where they're at, and then explain 99% of the time after our first visit, they're like, okay, you can keep this or we're throwing it away because I can explain without judgment and, you know, criticism of, because they don't know, you know, if you haven't trained dogs for 20 years, my client this morning, they had a new puppy, they hadn't trained in 20 years. So I'm like, training has changed, but they were (laughs) open. And that's what was, you know, was I could explain things to them. Well, okay, let's talk about this evolution. Someone who has loved dogs, been trained as you were about the same time when you first learned, oh, this is the choke call. Where do you start and how do you unlearn what you thought you knew? Because it, it kind of worked. That is such a great question. And being a crossover trainer or crossover you know, client, that's what we call a person who it's, it's actually our dog training term that you cross over from using aversive or we call traditional training. So when I say traditional training, that means choke chains, pinch collars, electric call, shock collars, or alpha rolling dominance theory. That's all mm-hmm. what we put in a category called traditional training. Yeah, so, I think traditional sounds better than adversive because yes, exactly. I certainly don't think anyone like, I am going to be the adversary to my dog and I exactly. am going, yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. We and no, a puppy. Yeah. <laughs> no traditional trainer ever says, I use aversives. Right. They'll say, I okay. use dominance okay. theory. So what, I what, use- what language is, seems really important in this whole thing. We've talked oh, about. Uh, yes. Okay. So it's classical crazy. dog training and you want to kind of transition folks like me yes. to this newfangled way. How do you do it? Yeah, so this is why I wrote Evolution of Dog Training, actually, is because this is what I do with all these clients. So first, I ask them, well, why are you using it, you know, and, you know, so I can find out 
if it's just that the pet store told them to use this or is it history parents used it they've used it before because that makes a difference because if the pet store just gave it to them or a vet because we do have vets sometimes that will say go get a choke chain then i go all right this is the wrong equipment those are easy because they don't know any better but with the, somebody who's historically trained dogs the hardest people are the ones who believe they have a good dog only because of that training. Those are the hardest if they had a good dog in the past. So then I start to explain to them why I don't like to, I use harnesses for my dogs and I explain to them as a vet tech, I get to use my nursing part. As a vet tech, I talk about the trachea, the esophagus, all the veins and the nerves. There's so much in our neck and that it's the most vulnerable part of our body. Although traditional trainers will sometimes tell you it's the strongest part of the body, which I have not figured out that logic at all, but it's the most, that's where dogs kill, animals kill each other. This is vulnerable. They go for the jugular. They go for the jugular. So I tell people, talk about that first, because that makes it a little easier for them to understand why I'm trying to get away from the pain of it. I don't want them to hurt. So you reframe like just how to leash a dog. Exactly. By and saying, I, hey, you know, it's been dog collars for years, but now we're going to put a body harness on it and then hook into that. Exactly. And I have a, one of my podcasts is with one of my clients who's a dog physical therapist. And so she goes over this whole study of how much trauma happens to the neck. So we talk about that usually first, and then they start to, usually a light bulb starts to go on. And then I'd say, well, if we put a harness on, you know, we've got the rib cage, which protects the heart and the lungs. I mean, super valuable parts of our body. So let's put a harness there where it's, it's going to distribute any pressure that the dog may put on it. So I start with equipment. Then I start talking about timing and like, okay, well, if you use your pinch collar, your dog, you know, you say sit and they don't sit. Well, then you pop them. Well, maybe they sat while you were popping them. So now your timing's off. So they don't know what's right or wrong. So what I do sometimes is I'll like, say I'm looking at you and I'd say, no. And they're like, well, what? And you wouldn't know, was I saying no about drinking your water, looking at me because you have your headphones on? You know, like if I just said no to you, you'd have no idea what I was punishing you about. So then they start to go, oh. And so we start talking about, how timing is important. And then I start introducing positive reinforcement that way, where I start to explain the history of it a little bit. And then I'm like, okay, well, if I tell you good, you may not still know what I just said good about, but you're like, and I gave you a treat or in humans money, you know, you might be like, okay, I'm listening. And then I say good again. And you're like, okay, she likes something I'm doing, but what is it? I don't know. And I used oftentimes use a clicker. Not, I'm not exclusive clicker. It depends on the client and the dog and what we're working on. But then I start to see that the dog, usually within our first session, a dog is responding to me better than they've ever responded to them, which sometimes actually becomes a problem. I have had clients get a little upset with me that their dog likes me more than them after the first session and they trust me more, like we'll come back for the second session and the dog's like, hi, hi, hi. And they're like, they don't treat me that way. And I'm like, well, you have a history of this other training and they have to rebuild the trust with you. Yeah. For me, and I'm they're cookie- confused. I would think the dog totally. is like, I don't know what she wants. She's exactly. doing this. And- 
And so that is a big part is timing. If your timing is not right, it's so confusing for dogs. Because they don't have all, I mean, puppies especially don't have vast cerebral cortex. They very much live in the moment now. Exactly. Well, and all dogs do, but puppies are even more. And when they're first learning, they're in the moment. And so it's hard. Then they don't understand. And then sometimes if I'm really having somebody struggle with or they're trying to tell me, well, I want to tell them no and yes, then I start to bring in something called trauma bond, which is a human term, human psychological term. And it's found in domestic violence situations. But it's where I usually say husband, but it could be either. It could be anybody. We'll just say husband comes home and the wife doesn't know, is he bringing me flowers or is he going to be you know, upset with me? Is he going to be abusive towards me? And then I let that sink in. I said, how would you feel if you had somebody, and sometimes they can come up with somebody, maybe they're not abusive, but maybe they've got someone who's sometimes nice and sometimes not, mm-hmm. and they're sort of have to walk on eggshells around that person. Mm-hmm. When I let that sit in, sometimes that's what gets people where they go. I don't want my dog walking around eggshells with me. I want my dog to want to be with me and want to do things for me. And I said, then what you have to start to do is look for what you like. Humans are trained innately to look for what we don't like. If you do something wrong, people will tell if you, if they have a bad experience, 20 people will know. If you have a good experience, one person will know. And that's all in marketing. We know that bad experiences stick. Yelp reviews, you know, well, the one bad review everyone talks about the one good review, nobody talks about. So I tell them we want everything to be positive that comes from you. And then also helps with the clarity. So if they start to figure out my mom gave me a treat and I'm not sure why, I'm going to pay attention and see if I can get that again. And I'm going to reproduce those behaviors that are getting the treat, the praise, the toy, whatever your dog's working for. And that's how I start to shift it. And I usually tend them home with very simple behaviors so that, because I need to set that the humans up for success or the dogs will never have success. So I sent them home with simple behaviors. Then they come back and obviously as long as they've practiced, those simple behaviors are really good. And the shift is starting. Even in my classes, I start with very simple behaviors the first night or day so that people can go home feeling empowered. The What's way the they example train their of a simple help. behavior that you like, spend the moment with? The first two things that I almost always teach somebody who's starting off is what I call the name game. So all you do is say your dog's name. And when they look at you, they don't have to make eye contact. I just want redirection. They get a click and a treat if I'm using the clicker. I think the clicker works a little better for this because it can be a fast look. So I want that fast look recorded. Mm -hmm. So I click and treat. The dog goes, why did I just get a treat? And then you say their name again and they look. Then you have a hard time because then they're staring at you and you have to do things to distract them. But it's a powerful behavior to teach because we don't think about it. We say their names all day long, but we never have an expectation of what we want. Well, we do but we don't deliver that information to the dog. So we expect the dog to look at us when we say their name. When I say your name, look at me. (laughs) But when I say your name, look at me and look, you get a treat and a click. Yeah. It it, It doesn't take that many times, I guess, for people to experience success with that. Exactly. And then sit, unless the dog has a hip issue or a knee issue, because I just lure into sit. I still use luring for that because they can see how raising a treat over the dog's nose and head their rear end automatically, not all the time, but most right. of the time hits the ground. They can click. Now that we're going back to traditional dog. I mean, that's back in the 1990s. Yes. That's just because, <laughs> that's just the physiology of a dog. Exactly. In my clicker training circles, 
I'm blasphemous sometimes because I still lure, but this is my defense. Oh, because this is the whole... Now, we'll get a little bit into the politics. Not only is there <laughs> classic, but there's like clicker training and then there's yes. strong clicker training. So you're kind of like, it's a um, nice sound effect that helps reinforce things, but it's not the end all and be all. No, because of my history, because I've learned so many techniques. I mean, I have a big toolbox of ways. Right. I look at the person. I look at the dog. I look at the behavior we're trying to get. I look at the environment. If I'm in a class with, you know, six dogs and six people that are brand new handlers and they can make their dog do something by putting a treat over their head in two minutes, it's buy-in. They believe me. They're like, okay, she knows what she's doing. And why make capture? Because there's other ways of training sit. So you can capture it. So whenever the dog sits, you click and treat it or you reward it. But that takes a lot more learning for you the dog. That's capture, I imagine, is just waiting around for the dog just to sit and then you reward it with a click. A click or a treat, yeah. And that can be good in some behaviors, but a new dog learner, that can be very frustrating because it can feel very random. So then there's targeting, you know, but that's harder to do with their rear end when they're a beginner learner. Yeah. So sit and name game are simple for the owners and the handlers to process. This is a good place to take a quick break, but when we come back, we will hear more about positive reinforcement and what you should look for when finding a trainer. We'll be right back. And now, a message from your dog. Every day with you is like a day at the beach. And I want as many beach days as possible. I want to run and sniff and find a good stick to carry. I want to roll in the grass and warm my belly in the sun. I want to walk with you, run with you, sleep with you, eat with you. And when I eat with you, I want Everpup. The green, grassy, beef liver spiked smell wakes my senses. You may not realize this, but it tastes like homemade gravy, especially when you wet it. It infuses any food you give me with health and life and vibrancy. I can feel it. Everpup traveling to every cell in my body, nourishing each one. Does it roll back time? Of course not. Not really. But it helps me feel like I'm on top of the world. I'm so glad you're giving it to me every day. Because every day I'm so glad to be with you. I'm so grateful to be your dog and for the Everpup you give me. So now that you know what your dog wants, get Everpup, the ultimate dog supplement. Everpup is available in select pet shops and on Amazon. But to get the best price possible, join the Everpup Club at everpupclub.com, where you'll get your first jar for just $8 with free shipping anywhere in the U.S. Go to everpupclub.com and use the discount code DPN. That is everpupclub.com. Everpup every day. We are back with Shannon Riley Coiner. Earlier in our conversation, you used the word buy-in, and it seems like that is really an important component for the success that you get with your clients because you're showing them all these small things that they can do at home, and then they start to get some success and they start to see some confidence in what they're doing, and it's like, hey, what I'm learning actually works. Exactly. And that buy-in is a big thing too. When I have clients who've come to me from multiple trainers, which actually happens more often than you would think. 
What do you mean? Um, they went to another trainer mm. who maybe the dog didn't like that or the trainer, you know, didn't like the dog or mm. or they used the traditional training or things didn't work. Sometimes I think the trainers confuse the people too. And so then, you know, they're not successful. So sometimes I get people who have gone to three or four trainers before me. And so, and someone told them about me, oh, you have to go to Shannon. She'll help you. And they come in very skeptical. <laughs> and I want to get into this, and this is probably a good time. Mm-hmm. There are 18 gazillion quadrillion dog trainers with mm-hmm. all sorts of letters. And you can go learn things on YouTube. And there's just, it's just literally a much more competitive marketplace from mm-hmm. a business perspective than it was back in, oh, in the 1990s. When yes. There was like, you know, I was in Alexandria, Virginia. There was the Old Town School for Dogs. And mm-hmm. That was it. Yeah, they um, had one dog school per city. You know, yeah, it was, it was one like dog that. school, and it was the but that was the best, right? And yeah. there's for the Washington D.C. area, so there may be another one over in Maryland. But I mean, it was that type of thing. But now there's so many, and it's so confusing. And you said that some of the dog trainers are, I'm assuming, unintentionally confusing people. <laughs> How does someone who's listening to this, or someone like me who's thinking about, you know, like getting a puppy and then going about this, get deconfused and find the right trainer? That is such a great question. And actually, um, I think that's on my website. We have it. I know I have a, there's so many information. We sometimes try to scale down, but there's all these questions you should ask and things that you should ask a trainer or find out is they should have some kind of education besides reading a book or (laughs) I train my own dog. So now I'm a dog trainer. Like there should be some career oriented skill set to it. Mm -hmm. So I tell people they should have some kind of certification because they've gone through. Now there's lots of certifications that are out there, but there are some that are better quality. It means that they make you test a little bit better. It's not just that you watch a webinar and you're a dog trainer. Most of them have to have some hands-on component. So the very first one I talked about at the beginning is um, certified professional dog trainers now they have one that's called Knowledge Assess, which I am right now because that was the first thing they had. And that means you had to have so many hours being an assistant to someone and then teaching your own classes to some degree. So many um, hours because yeah, there's really have- no substitute for experience. No substitute for experience. <laughs> so someone no who's just like freshly minted, I have learned how to do this. I took a class. I watched yes. a lot of YouTube. Probably not the right person. No, I actually have the vast experience, right? I have a trainer who's actually shadowing me right now. And my favorite is the Karen Pryor Academy. That's of all the things I have, of all my letters, that's the one that I feel like is best for anyone, whether you're just starting out or you've been experienced. Because I went into it, I graduated from that in 2011. So I had been professionally training for a, a long time and I still felt like I learned so much. But a lot of people were brand new And so I like it because if it's over your head, it's over your head. So if you're a beginner, you still learn stuff, but some stuff just passes over. When you're at a higher level, you're like, okay, validation, validation, boom, I'm going to move something higher. So the Karen Pryor Academy is my favorite. So how that works is it's online. You do a bunch of online stuff. And before COVID, you met in person four times. So four weekends, you took your dog. You had to do certain skills during the month. And you showed your teacher what you had done over that month. And then you had another month. 
And then you go and meet with your teacher and you show your teacher with your dog what you have learned. So your dog is learning at the same time. You get very so, bonded. Um, so this is training not for trainers, but for dog lovers. It could be, but it's pretty expensive. So it's mostly for dog trainers who want to really hone their skills okay. or learn if you're a first timer. But there's an online version. I have a trainer who's shadowing me. She was an old client and she wants to be a dog trainer now. And she did this online version of KPA, which is great because I feel like she has a good education. But she admitted to me, she goes, but I didn't do any of the hands-on exercises because it wasn't required because it was just online. And I looked at her and I said, you cannot train any classes here until you go back (laughs) and you do those hands-on stuff. You have to do the hands-on or you can't be a trainer because... It's already hard because you're only working with your dog. Like if you don't work with other dogs, that's a whole nother world. So you have to have hands-on skills. You have to have some certifications and really looking at what the certifications are. If it's, you know, just Joe Blow's dog training school. Well, what does Joe Blow, what is he teaching them? And what is his background? Because a teacher, you know, has to have the knowledge to be able to share the teaching. And if you're not learning from a good source, it's not a good place to start. Okay. So you said that you get clients who have come from other dog trainers where they mm-hmm. got confused. How do you know if it's time to look for a different dog trainer? So some of my clients, one of the most problematic, I would say, was I have a client whose dog was reactive on leash she got eventually on a pinch collar. They did all kinds of different things. She went to the third one and she popped the pinch collar. The dog tried to bite her. And this was like the most human friendly dog normally you could ever have. So when that dog tried to bite her, a red flag went up and she was like, this is not okay. This is not the relationship I want with this dog. So if something's going AWOL, that's one thing. Another one of my clients felt like she was never really clear on what to do with her dog. So she was doing things that they told her to do, but she didn't have very much hands-on with this. It was a lot of virtual. And so she said, we went and started doing virtual. And she was like, oh my gosh, I needed someone to show me and be able to say, let's just fix it, you know, that way. The other reason I get clients is if a trainer treats you poorly, you don't need to stay with them. Because a lot of Bad trainers... Bad customer service, basically. Yes. A lot of trainers love dogs, yeah. but they don't really like people. <laughs> and um, and if they're rude to you, which yeah. there used to be a trainer in town, I met her once because she was all excited because we had some of the same letters. So she invited me when I moved back to Ventura. I grew up in Ventura, but I moved back. Oh, let's have lunch. And I was like, whoa, you're a lot. You know, like she wasn't nice. And I ended up getting a lot of her clients because they just said she wasn't nice to me. So if you have a hunch that maybe the dog trainer isn't great with you, maybe time to look around and ask your friends like where, where they got. For sure. Do you think that one-on-one training is critical or group training, which is obviously more economical? It is totally dependent on what the skills that our situation is. So if you're just doing good manners, mm-hmm. your dog doesn't have any fears, anxieties, major problems, a class is a great place to go because they get to practice with distractions and different people and different dogs. Agility. I have people who ask me to do agility privately and I'm like, if we're working on like some of your handling skills, that's fine. But an hour of agility for one dog is a lot. So 
one-on-one is not good for agility in general, unless they're working on a specific problem. But reactive dogs, like I work with a lot of aggressive dogs, dogs that bark, growl, and lunge at other people, aren't dogs. Those dogs need one-on-one because they're going to be so stimulated in a class that the human can't learn themselves because they're so distracted by the dog barking, growling, and lunging. This morning, I was with a puppy client. They were having house training problems, but they had had a puppy in 20 years. So the puppy had free reign of the house. So we had to talk about confinement and boundaries and and reinforcing and house training in general. So those problems like that are better one-on-one because a teacher can't do that in a class. But if you're just looking at sit down, come stay, you know, leave it, drop it, some of those things, or canine good citizen, you know, where they get a canine good citizen award, you can do those in a class and it's way more economical. So people can do more because it's not as expensive. One-on-one is way more expensive, but you hone in exactly what your problem is or your dog's problem is. And where is the role of mediated online, you know, YouTube? I know you have a course. I mean, where is the role of this type of education relative to in-person education? I'm old school because I'm old. So I am. Experienced, uh, (laughs) wise. So me, like online learning is a lot harder for me to do. And I'm not really motivated to practice if I'm just watching someone on a screen because I've done online classes to teach my dogs like certain tricks. And I want to learn freestyle, which is where you dance with a dog. I've done it with one dog, but I don't know how to teach it because I haven't done it enough. So I tried to watch an online class and I'm not good at that because I need the teacher to say, you're not doing this right or you're doing this right. Like I need a teacher to coach me. Mm-hmm. And so I'm personally not good at online. However, mm-hmm. I do recognize we have a whole new generation of people who know screens. They grew up with damn computers. <laughs> and yeah. they're way better. Like my kids can like watch a YouTube video and learn how to do stuff. I watch a YouTube video. I have to watch it 25, t- how to change a, a spigot or something. I have to watch it 25,000 times and I still do it wrong. And I have to call a plumber. My kids, <laughs> they like, oh, it's just like this, blah, blah, blah. I just don't learn as well. But mm-hmm. some people do, which is, and then with, obviously with COVID, people didn't have any access and there was a lot of, dogs needing some skills and people had more time because they weren't working. So they had time to do it. So online has its place. Part of the reason I started truly force free animal training was because I would go to veterinary conferences as a vet tech. I would go to these conferences and I would talk to these vets about what I do. And they would be like, well, we don't have anybody like you in our area that does positive training. How do we have access to that if there's no one in our area? And that's what my light bulb went on. And I said, I want positive forestry training to be available anywhere to anyone at any time. You just turn on a computer and you've got it. And so that's how that became was there are places like California tends to be a little more progressive. Although I have to say there's not a lot of positive trainers in my area. But when I lived in Napa and Berkeley was there in San Francisco, we had Jean Donaldson, Ian Dunbar. There's Donna Dunbar. She's not practicing anymore. I mean, I was like surrounded by all positive trainers. And then I moved Mm -hmm. back home to Ventura and I'm like, there's one positive trainer in like a hundred miles. And so it was um, eye opening how it is. So that's how I started because people need to have this information. And if they don't, 
They will resort to what they knew or old school stuff. And then our dogs suffer, you know. I want to ask you about your background. As as a mm-hmm. vet tech, you actually think we're past president of the Society for Veterinary Behavioral Technicians. Mm-hmm. First of all, it's, a, again, a mouthful, but what is a behavioral vet technician? That is a good question. Yeah. So Society of Veterinary Behavior Technicians is a group of vet tech. Well, I should probably go backwards because veterinary behaviorists is a fairly new field. It's really not that new, but it's hard to do. So, and it's not financially feasible. Like becoming a surgeon is way more financially feasible for veterinarians. So my, I call her the godmother of veterinary behavior. She's actually what got me wanting to do it more in a veterinary hospital. I think Karen overall could walk on water. I just love her. So she's a veterinary behavior veterinarian. So they started a movement because just like we have human psychologists for children and things like that, we didn't have anybody in the veterinary world who specialized in behavior. So we were relying on trainers, which trainers have vast experience. So the veterinary behaviors were the ones that were doing the studies. They were really looking at the neurological part of all of this and the psychology of it. So veterinary behaviorists started going to school, become getting residents. So they do their four years of veterinary behavior and then do four years of residency, just like they do for surgeons, for oncologists, for any specialty already. That's, if you think about it, that's 12 years of school because they got their undergrad, their veterinarian, and then their specialty. So it's a lot of school and the veterinary behaviors were doing this. But what they were realizing is that they were seeing clients and they needed techs who had the hands-on skills to help them because they would give a plan like, okay, this is what we need to do. Counter conditioning, desensitizing, which are also a whole bunch of fancy words, but they didn't have the time to do the hands-on. They needed a nurse to do it. So then the Society of Veterinary Behavior Technicians started. The founders worked at, one of them worked at Purdue. One of them is married to a behaviorist. So they had instant people who they could, you know, work for. So one of the things that you are looking for or one should look for in a dog trainer is like continued education where you're continuing to learn new things, get more letters uh, (laughs) after your name. I like that. And, And learn more. Just to wrap things up, where do you see us heading? There's the old dog training. There's what we're doing now. Polish that crystal ball and look into the future and tell me what you see is on the horizon. I think we were making good progress and then Caesar came out and it set us back a little bit because we were actually making good progress. We're making progress again. I believe that just like raising children, you know, when I was little, like spanking, you know, the ruler for the teacher, you know, we used a lot of more punishment based for children mm-hmm. 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. Um, now that's evolving and we're learning better ways of parenting. I think the same evolution is going to happen with dogs. I think in 50 years from now, we're going to look at choke chains and pinch collars and electric collars and go, I cannot believe we put those on our dogs. And I see it happening in other countries, Germany, Austria, a lot of them have banned and they continue to ban some of this equipment. So United States is always a little slower on the pickup of things like that. But other countries, Europe particularly, is banning these things. So we're on the right track. It's just the problem with traditional training is that it, quote unquote, works 
fast, but it works because you're putting your dog into fear and anxiety and, you know, avoiding getting hurt. Mm -hmm. And we know now, like as humans, when you're always trying to avoid getting in trouble, it's kind of stressful. It's like a chronic cortisol release of, Mm. of anxiety. So we're seeing it. And the one thing I have to say too, is when I started this, I remember saying, why aren't dogs studied? Cause we never studied dogs. And uh, somebody told me once, the reason that they didn't study dogs 20 years ago was because it's easier to study rats because you can have a hundred rats in a room. You don't have to take them out to potty. You don't have to play with them. You just feed them and they're in a cage. Well, I think it was Brian Hare at Duke. Um, He started going, wait a minute. These dogs, when we do studies on humans, we don't make them stay in a room for six months while we study them. They go home. They report back. So we started letting the owners fill out surveys, you know, do things. And then maybe the dog came in once a week for an evaluation and things like that. And so we started using dogs from their homes. And now studies are happening every day. There's new studies coming out about dogs. And I think it's that's super important for our future. Shannon Riley Corner, thank you so much for being with us today. You're I really appreciate welcome. it. You're very welcome. Thank you. It was great. If you would like to learn more about Shannon's truly force-free animal training, you can visit her website, trulyforcefree.com, or check the link in today's show notes. She's also written a book about her method, which you can find through the link in the show notes. Well, that is all the time we have for on today's program. I want to thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed the conversation, please follow this show in your favorite podcast app. We are also on YouTube. And please do tell a friend about The Long Leash. You can find all of our back episodes on our website at longleashshow.com. I'm James Jacobson. On behalf of all of us here at Dog Podcast Network, I'd like to wish you and your dog a very warm aloha. Is artificial intelligence going to change veterinary medicine? Well, it already has. Right now on Dog Cancer Answers, we're speaking with Dr. Kelly Deal of Morris Animal Foundation about how AI is impacting veterinary research and the practice of medicine itself. That's on Dog Cancer Answers. Get it wherever you get your podcasts or at dogcancer.com slash podcast.